What was it like for you, Nadia, to ring the closing bell on Wall Street and then see your, I think this all happened in one day, right? And then see your face in Times Square? Yeah. So the closing bell was at the NASDAQ Center. So it was in um, Times Square. Honestly, I I feel like that day I peaked. (laughs) Like it's all just downhill from there. (laughs) That day I had woken up in the morning, found out I was like headlining the Forbes 30 under 30 and was just like my phone was exploding and then was going to ring the closing bell at the NASDAQ Center in Times Square and then seeing my face up there was, it was crazy. So it was like this an out of world experience. Yeah, that, that was a great day. We stand today. The Business Method with a shout The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics for location independence. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring successful entrepreneurs and high-profile people dissecting their business models. We dissect the different methods, tools, and tactics of high-performance online entrepreneurs and high-caliber people in a series format. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs in 100 days that have built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built location-independent businesses that produce over a million dollars and annual revenue and now we're interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business and influence income results economies and cultures there's a growing number of people building these caliber of businesses like this and we're going to figure out what it takes to make this happen now let's jump in today's show the business method there's so many different aspects to influence It is quite eye-opening to see people in different stages of their lives use influence and understand how to use it. Today's guest is no exception and quite a prodigy when it comes to business and influence. Although she might not call herself that, Nadia Masri is the founder of Perksy, a revolutionary market research app that is helping business get much more effective results when conducting market research, and it also gamifies the surveying with rewards for those that are replying to the research. On top of that, Nadia is a recent featuring winner of Forbes 30 Under 30. Today on the show, we talk with Nadia about how she created Perksy from a project at college and building it into a company highly recognized by Forbes and the business world today by the age of 28. We also chat about how she sees and designs quality platforms for users, how she was a driven entrepreneur from a young age, how she uses high-performance productivity, and how Nadia blends influence and leadership into one. It's another great episode, you guys, and without further ado, let's welcome Nadia to the show. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Listeners, welcome back to the show. We are glad to have you, and we're happy to introduce Nadia Massery from Get Perksy, who's joining us on the podcast today. Nadia, how are you? Good. Good, Chris. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for asking. And and earlier, you told us you're calling in from your own office within your office in New York City, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yep, I am. Uh, So my little... My tiny little office in the, the corner of the, the building um, here in Soho, Manhattan. 
Very cool. And we're going to chat more about why you highly recommend having an office amongst your office, a personal office for yourself, and how it's increased your productivity later in the show. But uh, we want to talk about you and get Perksy and, and all the amazing things that you have been doing over the years and get to know you more as the entrepreneur and uh, talk about also influence and leadership and how it's helped you grow as well. So again, thanks for coming to the show. We're happy to have, have you here. And um, I think first, Nadia, I want to uh, ask you a little bit more because I think you have an interesting background. I'd like to, if you could share your backstory just for a couple of minutes and let the listeners know how you grew into the entrepreneur that you are today. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks so much for, for having me on today. I'm really excited to, to be here and to be sharing with your listeners. Um, so I guess my backstory, let me think. So I started my first company when I was 17 in my first year of college. I was up in Canada. Shout out to all the, the Canadians, especially anyone from Toronto. Um, and it was just a local a painting business. And I mean like house painting and fence painting. Um, essentially at the job fair in um, my first year, I learned that there was an opportunity for students to uh, buy a franchise and become franchise managers. And I personally thought that that would be the best way for me to rapidly learn how to structure a business and how to basically how to start a, start a business. Um, I thought an S&B would be a great way to start small. And I also learned that the franchises, they train franchise managers. So they teach you the things that I felt like I wasn't learning in school. So accounting principles, which I happened to not be learning in school based on my major. And things like payroll and human capital management, um, procurement, all the things that you need to think about when you're running a business. And learning those things, which I ended up doing after, after you know, participating in, in buying a franchise, they've been so helpful today. I feel like there's things that it made it a lot easier for me um, when I started sort of the more serious component of my entrepreneurial journey. Um, you know... So the way that program worked was, you know, you start that business, you buy the franchise, you're trained. And then over the summer um, of your, sort of when you're in your first year of college, over the summer, you run the business. Um, so we had booked about $70,000 worth of work. So I'd done quite a bit. Um, it was very exciting to me at the time. Um, I learned what it was like to run and manage a business. And then at the end of the summer, um, you know, we were tasked with finding a buyer to then buy the franchise for the following year, which was really cool because it was kind of like a, a complete process, even down to the quote unquote M&A side of it. Mm -hmm. um, so that was definitely, that was definitely exciting. Um, and then going into my second year of college, I, I just realized, I'm like, you know, I really want to keep doing this. And at the time, um, I was writing a blog and it was kind of at the time where no one was writing blogs. Like it was actually uncool to be doing so. <laughs> yeah. Like they were, they were like, you're writing about fashion and culture on the internet. So strange. <laughs> um, but it was one of the youngest Canadian fashion bloggers to be invited to New York Fashion Week. And so I had some very exciting opportunities at a young age. Um, and I decided to, you know, pursue those opportunities and, um, you know, I, I ended up moving to New York for, a period of time and turning that blog into a magazine called Birkage Magazine. Um, we had over 50 contributors. It was kind of, you know, we made a small splash in our own like little market. Um, I think there were a group of us 
um, here in New York, a um, bunch of 19 year olds who at the time didn't believe in advertising, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, living in Williamsburg and um, launching uh, this, this content. Uh, and then, you know, that one, it didn't really work out in the way that we had wanted it to. And, you know, I look at it very differently now. I think at the time um, I was very, very upset by the fact that this, it didn't work um, in the way that I'd wanted it to. And I just didn't have the experience or expertise, you know, to be launching into publishing, especially at a time where the iPad had just come out and a lot of content was going digital. And we were actually, um, we were actually pushing for print. Um, so that was, that was amazing. But the most important lesson it taught me was how to fail forward instead of failing back. So it taught me how to, you know, take what I had learned, take what I had and move on to the next thing quickly, fail faster and feel better. Right. Um, and then from there, it opened a huge door for me based on the relationships I had made. Um, we built a lot of hype off of that, that um, the Birdcage project and, you know, made a lot of uh, great connections. Um, I'd scaled quite a bit of the marketing. And so, you know, someone in Toronto asked if I wanted to, you know, come be uh, the co-founder of a tech company there. Um, and he had a, a great concept. It was a digital marketing platform for e-commerce retailers um, called 460. And so I decided to join him and help build that out. Um, after about a year and a half, um, I decided to go back to school. So it was kind of my time. I was like, you know, it's time for me to go back to school. Um, and I found a really unique backdoor into Harvard by starting through the extension school, um, which was great. And then um, finding my way onto campus full time and um, studying, well, I declared my concentration in psychology and taking a minor in marketing. And it was really there that I, I started actively thinking about behavioral sciences and focusing my, my studies on that. And over the summer, um, I had taken a strategic marketing management class, um, which was an HBF course adapted for undergraduate credit that taught me all about market research, how to scale marketing in an organization. And that's when I learned that there was such a gap in the market research industry Mm. that, you know, you have these incumbents like Nielsen and Ipsos and Kantar who, you know, are are really, haven't been adapting for the mobile generation. And I was like, at the time, you know, I've gone back to school. I'm like, it's 2015. How is there no leading mobile solution? (laughs) How can we make it so that, can you believe that in 2015, no leading mobile solution? I said, how can we build something? that consumers would love? How can we turn feedback into this new favorite form of engagement? How can we make this interesting and exciting and not use the standard antiquated pool of professional respondents who recycle through panel after panel? Um, so I prototyped an app on campus um, and you know the, the concept went over quite well in my process, like you should consider taking this to market. Um, and I was like, you know what? I've done it once. I guess actually I've done it three times. I can do it again. Um, so I just packed up my bags and moved to San Francisco. My belief is that if you want to be really good at anything, mm-hmm. um, like tremendously good, uh, you need total immersion, which is completely immersing yourself yeah. in the environment um, where you can learn everything you need to learn. And I truly wanted to learn how to productize market research in this way and make it palatable for you know the the consumer audience. So you know, brings me to sort of where I am today, um, you know, after founding that company in September 2015 and building for, for two years, um, we then moved to New York, um, launched the product to the market in January 2018, which is the team of three people. We're now a team of 20 
about a year and a half later. Um, and yeah, we've, we've closed around, gotten a bunch of really amazing clients nice. uh, we love working with um, and kind of off to the races now. Very cool. So did you know from a young age, Nadia, that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Because it seems like, it, it, you know, you started at 17 to learn how to be a better business person. Is this something that, that, that you feel naturally into or is this something that you had, you knew you were going to do? So to be quite honest, you know, when I was 17, I didn't want to be a, become a better business person. I think I just wanted to learn how to become a business person. Right. It wasn't until I was older that I was more reflective on that and really started thinking about, okay, you know, I've learned the bulk of it. How can I, not the bulk of it, but I mean, of, <laughs> of what I was hoping to learn, I guess the, the core principles, uh-huh. <laughs> you can never really learn the bulk of it, um, you know, at that time. And then how do I improve? I would say that when I, when I was younger, I, I didn't really look to entrepreneurship. I don't think um, I was encouraged to do so. Not from the standpoint of like, you know, my, my family or anything like that. It just, there, there was nothing out there that really even enabled it to cross my mind. Um, I didn't really see, I, I didn't have access to, um, I guess, role models that I could see myself, you know, I could see myself in, my, in their shoes doing a similar thing. I actually wanted to be a film director. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a period of time, I wanted to be a, a surgeon. Um, but it's interesting because I've reflected on a lot of this and, you know, my, I was talking to my mom, I feel like, you know, the more you, you do this stuff, the more you want to understand why you're doing it. Um, I was talking to my mom and saying like, you know, mom, have I always sort of been like this? Like I, I was very creative growing up, wasn't I? And she said, you were, but you like to create little worlds. So even as a kid, you would take your toys and create this like universe. And I would walk into the room and you would just have your toys all lined up and you would be explaining how this entire like universe works. Wow. And I would just be staring at you being like, um, okay, great. You're playing. <laughs> Got it. Um, and so she joked that she thinks it's kind of the same. And she's like, you know, that's kind of what you're doing today. You're, yeah. you're sort of building your own world to live in. Um, you've built your own little like micro universe. And I thought that was a really cool way of describing it that, you don't necessarily ha- need to have business acumen um, or like, you know, an aptitude for entrepreneurship right off the bat. I think those things are learned. I think it's more, you know, they're more innate qualities, um, such as like creators. I think creators execute in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a lot of different types of entrepreneurs. And I've learned that over time. Um, definitely. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's really interesting because it's a good way to describe what entrepreneurs do when it comes to people who want to be entrepreneurs for for lifestyle we create our own micro universes in one way or another that we can you know you're right we're creators we're we're creating these things that we can exist in and play in and be in and like i think it was steve jobs that says you know we have to leave a, a dent in the universe or one of his quotes. Yeah. Yeah. I want to put a ding in the universe. Yeah. We're, yeah. <laughs> we're putting our own little ding in our own little, um, our, our own little microcosmos, which is really cool. Um, but I wanted to talk about, you know, your early days of entrepreneurship. Now it seems like you may argue with this, but kind of what I got from it is that you, you, you've been 
pretty successful in everything that you've done. Um, you know, you started the, the paint business very young and then you moved to the magazine and you moved, uh, you, you just kept moving on. Did you, would you agree with that, that you've been successful in, in th- these projects that you've done in businesses? I guess that's how you, it depends how you define success. Um, so I would answer yes, but like, I would also say that birdcage by all accounts and like technically failed. I mean, we weren't able to scale it. Um, We had to close the business. Um, It it wasn't able, we were able to break break even off the initial investment, but weren't profitable. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at it from from one angle, you could say that it was a failure. And I I certainly did at the time. Immediately after, I definitely looked at it as a failure, um, which I had a hard time with. Um, I think, you know, my personality isn't one that, that, does well with failure. And I think at a young age, you know, failures like that, we're not necessarily accustomed to, right. um, especially when, you know, you've grown up, I, I was on many sports teams and I was on student council and, you know, I, I liked being actively involved in projects and those projects tended to work. And so it's sort of my first sip of what the real world is actually like. Mm-hmm. And the fact that, you know, failure is much more prevalent in the quote unquote real world. So I would say like outside of the confines of, you know, the, uh, the walls of our educational um, establishments and, you know, our homes and where we've grown up. Um, But looking back on it, I think I have a very different attitude because I think what I've learned today, like what I know today is incredibly valuable. And the things that I've learned from those experiences and the people I met, I also learned how to, you know, manage a team. Like, sure, with with the painting company I did as well, but it was on a much smaller scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it was mostly, you know, it was labor. We had we had groups of painters going out and painting. Um, the need to, you know, they, they had their own job site managers. Um, but for for Birdcage, it was different. I had to manage people in you know close quarters who are all in an office and you know, many different folks. There was a lot more to do. Right. Um, I would say it was probably the best education I could have gotten in how to run a business. Um, I personally think that. I would also say that I was a different type of entrepreneur back then. I think I was um, a lot more afraid to ask for help when I needed it and afraid to say that I didn't know the answer. Um, I think, you know, when you're a a young entrepreneur, especially at that age, you know, I just turned 19. I was terrified that everyone would realize that I didn't know what I was doing. And write me off, which is kind of hilarious because I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I mean, whenever you're doing something new, you kind of don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't ask for help. I feel that one of the best things someone can do is really invest in the power of I don't know. Um, because when you don't know, people can't fault you for it. But yeah. if you act like or say that you do know and the results aren't what people expect, then they can fault you for that. And it's just less honest. So I think I've, you know, I've really learned to harness that and ask for help wherever I need it and whenever I need it. And I do that a lot more now. And it's, it's, it's my growth curve has, you know, um, gone up exponentially. I want to come up, come back and talk to you more about that. But one thing that, that I noticed about you is like, I think you're 28 now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So over the past nine years since you, or actually 11 years since you started the first business, um, 
for somebody that young to be as resilient with their business acumen um, and their persistence is, is really amazing. So I'm curious if, if you've ever pinpointed or thought about what makes you um, resilient enough because nine out of 10 businesses fail. And a lot of people, you know, they try for years and years and years just to get the first one going to even to a point where it's a profitable business. Um, but you've, you've knocked out four businesses now and have, uh, you know, have had some sort of success with those. Um, I'm curious, what makes you uh, resilient and persistent that you can just uh, not be drugged down by that failure so you can just like be, okay, what's the next? What's the next one? What's the next one? Let's go. So I think it came with time and me learning how to be uh, more thoughtful about what I wanted to create. So I think at that time, um, I would say definitely with Birdcage, I created out of desire rather than need. Um, so I didn't identify a need state and then address that. I created the kind of magazine that I would want to have, um, but it wasn't necessarily solving a business problem. I, I think I've always been a natural problem solver. I think I've been like that since I was a kid. Um, like I love puzzles and I love sol solving complex problems. So I think that, you know, moving into this area where it's like solving business problems um, through technology um, has been a lot more effective for me. I think because of that, I've also been able to be a lot more resilient because I look at the process differently. So I spoke to a lot of people and a lot of other potential customers or past customers from my prior businesses mm -hmm. um, when trying to conceptualize what perks would look and, and how it would function. And I think that makes a huge difference because when you truly understand what your audience wants and know that you're solving a significant problem for them, it's very hard to be detracted from that. Um, because I'm serving them, I'm serving my target buyer. So let's say I meet with, you know, a prospective investor who doesn't necessarily think the business is going to work. That doesn't really, like, it doesn't deter me at all because that investor isn't buying my product. My customers are. And so I listen to what they say above all else. And I really think that we've, we've thought about co-creation um, quite a bit. So, you know, I feel like I've almost co-created this product with customers. Um, and with, you know, those in the industry who would buy the product. And that's helped me not only believe even more furiously in what I'm building, um, but help me understand what's viable and what's not viable. And I think it's a combination of emotion and logic. So using logic to identify whether or not you're building a viable business and whether or not you're really serving a need state. And then using emotion to finding what you love and are passionate about and being just like, you know, completely devoted to it. Um, I, I do genuinely love what I do. And I think that's what helps the, the resilience part of it. Um, I can't see myself doing anything else. Like I, I just, I love doing this and I, I truly found something unexpected. I mean, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, if I thought I was going to start a market research company, I probably would have kind of, well, I'm not sure I would even have even known what that would entail, but um, very, very different response for sure. Um, I've just found that I absolutely love doing this. That really helps. You got to love what you do because it's not going to be easy. It's yeah. kind of like, you know, I, I liken it to a relationship. I mean, when you find it, you kind of, you know, you know what they say when you know, you know, and then on top of that, it's not going to be an easy road, 
But, you know, if you're committed to it and you truly love it, then, you know, you work through the problem. You can still go home at the end of the day and be like, I feel good about what I did today. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Uh, Where'd you get the idea for Perksy from? Um, I guess it was just a a thought process. Um, So it kind of evolved. It wasn't just like I woke up one morning and said, I need to build a next-gen consumer insights platform that powers real-time research with millennial and Gen Z audiences. As one does, more, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. As one does. Uh-huh. Um, it was more, hey, you know, I'm on this class and market research really seems to suck. I wonder if there's anything else out there. And then me doing the research and trying to figure out what other tools exist and then finding, hey, like what I thought should be here kind of isn't. Like how come none of this is like truly mobile first? not mobile optimized, mobile first, like made for mobile. Mm-hmm. And I also like look at, looked at it and was like, I don't want to participate in any of this. And then while I was, you know, pro- prototyping the product on campus, um, I learned that the, the guys' football team were participating in some, some research studies um, for weekend money. And I was like, wow, so there's, there's both supply and demand here, but there's no product that's really harnessing it. And serving as an, you know, kind of like a intermediary between the two, like almost like brokering it. Um, so then it, it sort of just kind of spiraled from there. I was like, what do I want it to look like? And of course, I mean, although I may have conceptualized it and designed the early versions of it, I mean, a lot of what exists came from, you know, building an incredible team that came up with, you know, so many of these like great features that we have in the platform now. So the core concept was just, I want to build a platform or some kind of thing where brands can better understand their audiences. And I feel like they should be talking to them because that's what I would want. I want to co-create products with companies and I want to tell, you know, I want to tell certain brands that they need to have, you know, more diversity in their shoe sizes Um, because I have big lady feet and a lot of a lot of brands don't carry my size and it sucks. Um, and same thing with skincare products. I'm like, why can't I just talk to brands and tell them this? Isn't this valuable? And once I found out that it would be to them, I'm something just clicked. And I was like, I got to figure this out. That's amazing. So let's go back. Let's talk about, um, consumer testing back in the day. And from my knowledge of it, it was basically like, well, it it wasn't that efficient. I think one of the statistics that that you guys point out, it's the normal is just one to three percent uh, response rate. Response yeah. rate, right? And a lot of times, it's these people either they're out in on the street or you know contacting former clients and asking them to fill out a form. Da 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 da. Let's get some feedback. Would you buy this? Da 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 da. And uh, incredibly, an incredible amount of work for I think the return that comes back for it. Is there anything that I'm missing? That's what I know of consumer testing in the past. Is there anything that I'm missing that? Yeah. So yeah go ahead. I, I I would yeah sorry I I would say that um there are many different types of consumer audience and market research. So you know we do cover a lot of ground. Um, it depends. I mean, we do ad effectiveness tests and we do product packaging tests. We also do general consumer research, customer feedback. Um, so there have been different ways to sort of serve the market historically. Mm-hmm. Um, we wanted to 
basically build something that could evolve into the Adobe suite of market research products. Um, So, you know, you have brands that are facilitating, you know, qualitative research studies or let's say focus groups um, and whatnot. They could be paying anywhere from $20,000 to $300,000 for one market research study. It depends on the the qualifiers and and what is necessary in that research campaign. I mean, we definitely do like for the gut check stuff, like just trying to get someone to, you know, fill out a form and, and hear back from them, like, you know, replacement for Google forms. Um, that's definitely an easy one. I would say that we play more in the arena of if a brand is looking to understand an audience and that audience is, is especially younger millennials and Gen Z. So we, we do 13 to 75, but that's like, you know, our real bread and butter. And, you know, they want to, they want to figure out if, if a certain influencer is right for a marketing campaign, or they want to test between two ads and see which one is going to be more effective in, in, you know, communicating the brand message. They might go to an Ipsos or a Nielsen or, you know, a a research now, but um, we wanted to create a platform that would put the power of real-time research in the brand's hands so that they could do this just in real time for a fraction of the cost instantly, instead of going through um, one of the larger intermediaries and, you know, waiting like a minimum of six weeks, which would be quick to get their responses back and to, to have their study complete. Um, in this day and age, if you're a brand that wants to move at the speed of culture, mm-hmm. uh, six weeks isn't going to cut it because mm-hmm. what your audience wants today and what they wanted yesterday is certainly not what, they can, what they're going to want in a week. Um, things change so rapidly now and, you know, the advent of, of mobile and, and this kind of, the kind of technology communications platforms that we have today have made everything move so quickly um, that brands need to move just as quickly. And so being able to get that research back same day, especially if you're like, let's say a CMO, um, your problem exists today. You need to solve it today or tomorrow or maybe Friday at the latest. So you need to figure out how to get the data that you need back to help inform your strategic decision making. Um, And the thing about, you know, if you're a a CMO and you get your answers back next quarter, I mean, your quarterly problem is gone. Like you're already on to the next quarter. There's a whole new other, you know, activation to think about. So we help them also really capture opportunities that could exist for them as brands. And well, you guys do something else that's really, really creative and ingenious, I think, is is you've gamified this in a way that makes it fun and rewarding for, for people to give the feedback. Can you tell us more about the structure of that? Yeah, absolutely. So that was something that I thought was very, very important. Um, so for me, I'm actually a tricky user. So I don't like doing things unless the experience is absolutely beautiful. Um, as I said, I, I grew up, you know, I think I was a fairly creative child. I really, really like art and design. Um, and I think that for me, I need something to be very engaging in order for me to play around with it. And I noticed that the apps that I liked most had the best design and the ones that, where I was spending the most time had the best design. So I think, um, you know, for apps to be successful, we need to do one of two things, either provide you know, a very necessary function to the point where the look and feel doesn't even matter, or they need to provide an entertaining experience. So people look for, you know, high value in function or 
um, entertainment. And so we kind of wanted to, to lean on the entertainment side and make it just fun to use. So we even have, you know, when we're having meetings with brands, we always recommend, we're like, oh, you should download the app so that you can, you know, understand what the user experience will be like. And they download it thinking that, oh, okay, I'll just do this. I'll just try it because, you know, I, I should probably know what it looks like if we want to use this company. And then, you know, meeting two, we always hear, oh my gosh, your app is so fun. Like we're mm-hmm. addicted. Like we love getting stacks. Mm-hmm. Um, and just so you know, stacks, um, that's our branded word for survey. So a user doesn't get a survey. A user gets a stack, um, like a stack of questions. Okay. And so, look, oh, we love getting stacks. So I basically designed it in the way that I would want to experience it. And, you know, got a lot of input from my, my peer group and some friends and, um, you know, from my friends' siblings and cousins and nieces and nephews to sort of better understand, like, hey, what would make this really fun? Um, and I think there's just some inherent psychology to it as well. People love answering questions. I mean, people love hearing answers to people's questions and people love asking questions and, like, telling others about themselves. I mean, we do it in so many contexts. Like, I'm doing it right now. Um, you might do it on a, on a first date, on a job interview, at a coffee shop when you, you know, meet someone for the first time. Um, we like telling other people about ourselves and sharing our backgrounds and our stories. I think right. storytelling is ingrained into, into, you know, the, the human biology and the human brain. So it's sort of just capturing that and finding a quick, fun and, and gamified way to do it. Um, while connecting brands with, with their audiences so that they can, you know, share. Yes. One of the um, old quotes that I always go by, like if you're having difficulty in a conversation, one of the biggest compliments you can always pay somebody is ask them about themselves because people love giving their opinions. And essentially that's what what they're doing, you know, with you guys. Um, You mentioned like the apps that you would spend most of the time on um, were well-designed and to the point. So I'm curious, do you remember some of those apps or some of the apps today that you spend most of your time on that you think are really well-designed? So a good example is um, I use Foursquare over Yelp um, because I think Foursquare looks better. Um, Now, I'm not an authority, so I can't speak to which has better reviews, better data, um, better, um, you know, community engagement. But I will say that the way that Foursquare looks is wonderful. Another good example is Postmates. I think Postmates is a beautifully designed app. Um, Everything is easy to navigate. Um, I love their logo. I just love the experience of the app itself. Um, Another one is Sweetgreen, you know, a salad app. Those do provide function. Um, But I think also, you know, differentiating Postmates from its competitors, it just looks better. So if I have to choose and there's no real functional difference between these food, like on-demand food delivery apps, I'm going to go with the one that looks best. Um, so that's kind of how I would characterize that example. Um, yeah, I would say, you know, it, sometimes it depends. Um, you know, Pinterest is an app that I use quite a bit. There is another platform out there called Nice with like two eyes. I think it's a fantastic alternative to Pinterest visually. Um, It doesn't have all the functionality there yet that I would like. Um, But, you know, I think visually it does, it does look better. Um, So I I don't know. It depends. I think you got to provide both. You have to provide the function and, and the, and the form. But, uh, you know, I I would say if, if there's no real functional difference, I'll always choose the one with better form. 
How do you spell that, Nadia? Is it in 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 i i t e? Is that oh nice n i i c e? Nice n i i c e. Okay, cool. Good, good. Yeah,、I'll、check that. It's、out. either two eyes or three eyes. I think it's two eyes though. Okay. <laughs> yeah.、Um, okay, so I, I want to chat. A bit about you getting on Forbes on Thirty Under Thirty. Congratulations, by the way. And thank you、uh, so much. Yeah, and I, I hear it was a pretty、um, amazing experience for you because you grew up seeing, you know,、uh, entrepreneurs on magazines like this, and then you got on it yourself. And not only that, but you got. Uh, your picture, I think, in Times Square, and you got to ring the bell, yeah, and at Wall Street, the closing bell at Wall Street. So, can you can you share with us a bit about your experience getting on getting on、uh, Forbes Thirty Under Thirty? Yeah,、um, so I would say that it was kind of crazy when it happened.、Um, you know, they were calling me in for the photo shoots, and I didn't really. I feel like I still didn't fully wrap my head around why. <laughs> yeah, and. You know, and they were like, "Oh, you, you may or may not be on the list. We we can neither, you know, <laughs> confirm nor deny that right at this time." And I was like, "Oh, okay. Like, I guess you know, maybe everyone goes through this. Like, I, I don't know what the process is. When when in reality, I should have just been like, 'Hey, I just did a photo shoot. <laughs> like,、right. like I'm I'm pretty sure this is happening.' But I guess I was. It just seems so. I guess sometimes it can feel so like far away.、Um, that when you're so. Wrapped up in what you're doing, sometimes it's hard to see it from an outside perspective, and see like to take a moment and say like, "Hey, I guess what I've done is pretty cool." I guess you know some people do think it's pretty cool, and I think maybe that's like a blessing and a curse.、Um, you know, it's I think it can be good at times because it, it keeps you focused and you know keeps your feet on the ground and you stay attached to like what's real. And I'm always thinking about what's next, so. You know, I I don't always take the time to reflect on on that kind of stuff, but when it happened, it was just I mean, it was amazing. I think the best part about it, I would say, you know, by far, was being able to to share it with my parents.、Yeah. Um, I think it was just one of those moments where I felt like I could, like I had done something that could almost like thank them for everything that they had invested in me, like their time.、Um, The way that they raised me,、um, I think I was raised with really strong values.、Um, I spent a lot of time with my parents.、Um, we're very family oriented. They didn't really believe in technology growing up, which is kind of funny. <laughs>、um, so we weren't allowed to have like phones or computers or play video games or watch TV.、Um, but there was a rule that anything that you want to learn, you can learn. So any class that you want to take,、um, any sport that you want to play, art that you want to participate in, or book you want to read, you can have. Um, that's what happens when your mom's a teacher. My mom was a teacher,、mm-hmm. <laughs> and my dad、uh, is a doctor. And so, I, I think they just like liked viewing things、um, in a very educational way, which you know sometimes kind of sucks when you're a kid. But I really learned to appreciate it, and I think it, it helped really mold my way of thinking and, and my approach to life.、Um, I think I'm just like a voracious learner; like I just want to learn as much as possible, and they inform that. So being able to share this with them. Um, was amazing. Just to see them so proud of me、um, was probably like the the best part of all of it. <laughs> oh, cool! And they're actually immigrants, right? They came from Syria, Syria and Ukraine. Yeah. So my dad is、um, an immigrant. He's、um, he was born in Syria, 
Um, and he went to, he moved to Spain when he was 18 and went to med school there. Um, met my mom there. She's actually uh, first generation. So she's Ukrainian. Her parents are Ukrainian immigrants and she's born in Canada. Um, and it's actually funny because, you know, I come from this Syrian Ukrainian household, um, that speaks Spanish at home. So it's very funny. Yeah, I think that also helps inform a lot of what, you know, we do here at Perksy. We redefine the way um, to bucket people based on race. So we don't believe in bucketing people by the big five. So, you know, white slash Caucasian, black slash African-American, Hispanic slash Latino, Asian slash Pacific Islander or other. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly because, you know, if you're Egyptian, you're technically categorized as Caucasian. But culturally, um, you know, your your values and, and, and I guess like cultural um, modus operandi is going to be different than yeah. it would be, you know, in the United States. Yeah. Um, and so I think we, we kind of like recrafted that so that I could feel like I was being represented as well. Um, so coming from a diverse background has definitely, definitely helped, um, helped in that regard. How'd you get on, on Forbes 30 under 30? I think you have to apply for, for it. Correct. And, but there's, I'm sure there's thousands of people that apply for it, right? Um, I, I, I guess so. Um, I don't know that side of, of things. I know that, um, you know, I was nominated and then oh, somebody nominated um, I'm not really okay. sure. Yes. And then I'm not really sure how the process works. Um, and then, you know, I think they'd started conversations and um, then I was asked to fill out some additional info. And then I, I got asked to come in and, and talk to, to someone. Um, it was, you know, it was an interesting process. It was, um, it was great. Uh, but again, like I didn't believe it until I actually saw myself in a magazine at the launch party and was like, oh my God, that's me. <laughs> that's crazy. Um, but it was really cool. And, and you know, I really do like the community. Um, I think that you only get as much as you give. Um, and if you participate in a community and give to a community, the community will give back. Yeah. Um, so I've noticed that, you know, with the other um, under 30s or just with the under 30 community in general, which, you know, for the events, they don't limit it to just those who have been under 30. Like anyone can really come. And I think that's great because it's very inspiring and allows people to, to sort of get involved with that community. Um, you know, I think, you know, a bunch of us are friends and, you know, we spend time together and it's nice to have some peers to talk about or, or to talk um, to who are at similar stages in you know, the life cycle of their company. What was it like for you, Nadia, to, to ring the closing bell on wall street and then see your, I think this all happened in one day, right. And then see your face in times square. Yeah. So that's, so yeah, it was in, um, so the closing bell was at the NASDAQ center. So it was in, um, times okay. square. And so, um, it was, kind of like honestly I, I feel like that day I peaked <laughs> like it's all just downhill from there um that day I had woken up in the morning found out I was on like headlining the Forbes 30 under 30 list for the year I'm in the category of marketing and advertising and was just like my phone was exploding and then was going to ring the um the closing bell uh at the the NASDAQ uh, mm-hmm. center in Times Square. And then seeing my face up there was, it was crazy. Like, especially <laughs> because back in the day, it's funny how things come around for full circle. When I was a little girl, I dreamed of being in Times Square. 
but because of some amazing acting and directing career, um, not oh, because wow. of entrepreneurship. So, so it kind of, it's funny how things do come around full circle. Um, it was like this an out of world experience. It was crazy. Um, yeah, that, that was a great day. And then I got a term sheet that day as well. So it was kind of the trifecta. <laughs> <laughs> um, sounds amazing. Uh, so I know that I'm sure, especially after getting on Forbes, you've grown influence throughout the years just being a successful entrepreneur and getting on Forbes. You know, I'm sure that skyrocketed that even more. And we were chatting before the show the importance of um, – Common combining leadership and influence and how, you know, if you're, you're an influencer and you're not a great leader, then there's consequences that, that can come about. And I'm curious if you would mind sharing more about how you like to combine, combine leadership and look at influence from a leadership standpoint. Yeah. So I think for me, um, I define I think influencer can sometimes be a dirty word. Um, I think, you know, before this podcast, we were kind of chatting um, and, and saying that, you know, sometimes the word influencer can be looked at as like, you know, the, the you know, old used car salesman yeah. um, attitude, which, you know, doesn't, I think people like has, assign certain connotations to, to both the roles. Um, yeah. I think that when it comes to influence, or being an influencer, it's really just leadership. I, I could at least say that in, in my capacity, I don't, I wouldn't classify myself as an influencer. Um, I guess not by today's definition of what that means, because to me that means like, you know, influencer, social influencer, you have a big Instagram following and, you know, brands, you know, pay you to promote products. So that's kind of how I look at it. But I think I, I view it as true leadership. So I would say that I'm a leader. And um, I've always aspired to be a leader and I've wanted to, to be a great leader. Um, and I think the only reason that we're, we're truly leaders, like you're truly a leader because there are people that follow you. Like, you know, a leader needs to have, have followers. And I think that, you know, my vision of the world I want to create and my vision of how I see this company growing has resonated with you know, a few other folks and they've joined on for the journey. And I think that's important. They, they're the ones that sort of empower me to be a leader. Um, and, you know, I think when it comes to influence, it is, it is true. I mean, as a, as a leader, you have influence. I've spoken, you know, at high schools and at colleges and it, it, sometimes it's crazy. Cause I'm like, wow, like I used to, I used to be in high school and in college and watch these people come in and, think that they were so amazing and like wow what great job they have like they're so influential this is so cool and it's crazy to think that I'm doing that now but I also take it very seriously because I think that that level of influence you know you have a responsibility um as with anything um you know you maybe not everyone decides to be put in that position but you take up the mantle kind of because you must um and that's how, that's how you're sort of seen as a leader. And I, I do take that really seriously. I think it's important because I know that when I was younger, you know, I had mentioned earlier in this podcast that I didn't necessarily have others that I could look at and say like, oh, I want to do exactly what they're doing. Like I want to be an entrepreneur because I just saw this amazing female entrepreneur 
who I identify with and can say, you know, I could, I could grow up to be like her. Um, so I realized that it was my responsibility to be the kind of leader that I had always hoped, you know, I, I would have for myself. And so that's kind of how I see it. Um, I think a leader does have a responsibility to do that. Um, yeah. What do you think are, so, so when you were younger and thinking of those people that you looked up to as leaders and you wanting to become those, uh, that type of person, what are some of the, the, the values or, um, the ethics that you hold true and that, that you think is important for leadership? Yeah, well, I would say that when I was younger, um, I didn't truly understand what leadership meant. And I think it's up to leaders to start defining that. And I think that, you know, in the last 10 years, we really have. I think that, you know, when I was growing up, um, leaders were defined by their success um, or what they have done. And that was typically financial. Um, So it's financial success. So the metrics that I look to aren't how much money, you know, the company has made or how much money I've made. It, it, that's not how I define whether or not someone is a success, successful leader. Um, I look at it as, you know, do the people who follow them and work with them, do they love doing that? Do they love working with that individual? Um, is the leader inspiring others? Is the leader holding values themselves that are ones that, you know, I would want to emulate? So values like integrity, um, you know, doing the right thing, even when no one's looking, um, you know, honesty, um, knowing when to speak up and say the right thing. Um, you know, a quote that always kind of comes into my mind is, you know, speak the truth, even if your voice shakes. Um, mm-hmm. And transparency. I mean, internally in the company, we do that. I think that there's always a fine line with transparency. Um, it's a conversation I like to have with other founders quite a bit. Because I think it's important to be um, very transparent with, you know, your people, um, like with your teammates. But there are also some things that, you know, they didn't sign up to be responsible for. Um, you know, I know of one one founder um, quite some time ago um, who had some trouble on his team because his teammates felt burdened, especially, you know, it was a, a kind of, you know, maybe a 30 to 40 person company. And, you know, some of the folks who were, junior marketing managers were like, I don't, I don't want to, like, I didn't sign up for the, the, the stress of making some of these decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not something that I wanted to do. So I think also being a leader is knowing when to do, when to do each thing. Um, so when is the right time? And it's really about just like taking care of people. Um, that's how I've looked at it. Like I really view my role as like, I'm responsible in this company for making sure that everyone is, is happy that of course they're being, you know, productive and doing great work, but loving what they do, that they feel like they're personally growing, um, professionally growing. Um, they feel emotionally supported and professionally supported. I think those are really important aspects. I think a leader needs to, to take care of, of, um, her or his people. Yeah, I think so too. That's a really great way to look at it because I mean, what's a leader without their people, right? And if you're not taking care of yeah. them, then your leadership's going to go to the crapper. Um, all right, let's talk about, we'll wrap it up with a subject both you and I love, productivity. And uh, we started off the podcast talking about uh, why you have a little office um, amongst your biggest, bigger office. And then um, 
chatting about why uh, why you feel it's much more productive for you to have that type of structure. Do you care to share uh, some more details about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I've, I've read quite a bit about the open concept office space and have learned that um, a purely open concept office space uh, doesn't actually bolster productivity. Um, it actually reduces it. So I wanted to find ways to create space within a space. Um, I think for myself as the CEO, ever since I moved, so we've got two floors, um, got one upstairs, I'm now on the downstairs floor. I found that ever since I moved downstairs into the smaller office, um, my personal productivity has really gone up, but also so has the team's decision-making processes. So, you know, we hired about seven folks last quarter and it's just interesting because when I was upstairs, I found that, you know, folks were were coming to me with um, questions that I truly believed that they were, you know, you know, smart enough, capable enough to, to, you know, make those decisions on their own. And I had great confidence in them. Um, But I think, you know, people are sometimes hesitant and can ask sometimes a little too early. And I've noticed that ever since I moved downstairs, that the rate of autonomous um, decision-making has gone up like crazy. So there are a lot more decisions that they're making on their own because they're like, oh, well, Nadia's not here right now. So, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to decide here. And I think that's also empowered them. It's, uh, I think both of us, like myself and, and for them, they've been able to see like, hey, like these decisions can be made without Nadia, they can absolutely do those. And I think that's the most evident in some of the, um, the newer hires, the ones that, you know, they might just be a couple years out of college and might not have the confidence to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. But we hired them for a reason because they're brilliant, talented individuals. And I have confidence, total and complete confidence that, you know, for a lot of the stuff that they were coming to me with, those are decisions that they can make on their own. And there are other times, of course, when it comes to budget approvals, things like that, you know, they might come to me for, um, but I found that my productivity has gone up a lot as well. I get easily distracted by a lot of noise. And when there's too much chatter, which sometimes happens with the teams that need to be um, conversing in order to solve problems, um, I would get distracted. Or sometimes I would jump in and mm-hmm. there's really no need for me to, but sometimes I just can't help it. There's an interesting discussion going on about what new feature to build and you just want to you know, pop in and say, oh yeah, we should definitely do this and that and that and that. And you know, it's why you hire great people. Um, they, they come up with, with those fantastic ideas and the CEO can still have influence over that, but also, you know, let her, her people do what they do best. Excellent. And I think you have two or three top things for your productivity levels. What are those, Nadia? So I would say the three top things, um, geez, maybe there are more than three, but how's this? I'll share three things that are pretty high on the list. Um, the first one is using your calendar as your GPS. Um, so someone once told me this, an old business coach of mine, um, he, he gave me that advice and I've stuck with it. Um, it's been the most valuable thing for me. I think what I check most is my calendar. It's what the most people have access to. And it's where appointments are it's basically where you agree upon a meeting in your calendar. Mm-hmm. So I also use my calendar as my GPS to dictate almost everything else in my life. So I have something called, um, sounds super cheesy, but it's called the peak performance plan, um, P3. And um, I like 
you know, I've told some of my friends about it and they've jumped on it and they're like, wow, this is awesome. It basically identifies the best times of the day to be doing certain things like working, taking breaks, um, based on our circadian rhythm. Um, so when our brains are the most active, when we're the most productive, when we have natural lags, um, and also ensuring that I'm scheduling time for a break. So your brain isn't actually the most effective when you do six hours of straight work, even four hours of straight work. So they say, you know, having a 15 minute break for every, um, I honestly think it's for every hour of productivity. I do. Yeah. 30 minutes for every two hours of productivity, um, is one of the best things to do. So I try to give myself a little more thinking time and let my brain sort of digest and problem solve as I do, you know, random tasks, like just tidying up the office or something else that could be productive, but isn't directly involved in the problem I'm trying to solve or the task at hand. Um, I found that using my calendar as my GPS really helps me stay accountable and um, stay focused and on track. Um, The other one is not necessarily productivity, but I I would just say a very, very, very important, um, you know, thing to have in your your entrepreneurial toolkit. And that's a stable of experience mentors. Um, I always kind of keep a list. I literally have a, a list on my wall of who to call when I have a problem. They're like ghostbusters. I just like, whenever <laughs> I got something, I just pick up the phone and give them a ring, um, nice. or shoot them a text or an email. And that really helps me think through some of the most challenging problems, but having that list easily accessible so that I can look at it, um, gives me a place to turn whenever I feel stuck. So I don't ever let myself stay stuck for too long. Um, I think about it, um, turn to my teammates. If we can't problem solve within, you know, within the hour, I, I would say even shorter, probably we are, we turn around decisions quite quickly. Um, but like within 20 minutes, um, I reach out to someone from the stable. Uh, the third one is, you know, I could throw in some like very specific productivity hacks. Um, if I were to do that, I would say uh, writing things down versus typing up notes is a better way for your brain to encode the information. So the way that we've evolved is, you know, our brains actually haven't been able to adapt quickly enough to typing and texting. So writing things down digitally, your brain actually doesn't remember it as well as it would if you were writing it down because you have both a vis- visual and kinesthetic process. Um, so that's two different ways of encoding information into your memory, um, which makes it a stronger memory. Um, basically a pro tip is if you write anything down or you're taking notes, if you also review those notes within six hours of learning the initial information, it, that process of review takes the information from your short-term memory and puts it into your long-term memory. So I pretty much write down my tasks and then go over my tasks again to basically remember what are the most important things I need to do. Um, one of the other things that I've, I've done that I've found very valuable, um, and it also helps overcome something that I think we as humans all face, which is... Um, fear of directly dealing with very difficult challenges. Sometimes we procrastinate those. I have a reminder on my phone that says Mm -hmm. deal with a difficult task. And basically I tell myself, if I deal with one extremely difficult and hard to face task per day, I'm kind of hitting things as they they go along. I think it's also, it's a great way to stay accountable and to really combat um, procrastination that stems from from fear of facing a particular issue. and then this one isn't productivity, but I would say I, I have something called the stress happiness balance. 
Um, it's okay. a contrast to the work-life balance. I think that today everyone is talking about work-life balance and trying to define what that means. And I think just as easily as, you know, we, you know, have, we can condemn people for some behavior. I think we, we do that with um, work-life balance. So I genuinely love my work. I love doing things related to my work. I wouldn't characterize myself as a workaholic. I would characterize myself as someone who chooses to do things that relate to my work because I absolutely love doing it. So for example, if I'm reading about something that is interesting and pertains to my work on the weekend, um, or reading a book that I think is going to help me become a better entrepreneur or a better leader, um, that's technically worked for me, but I love doing all of that. So I think what's more important is not necessarily checking work-life balance because I think people should have a choice. If they want to have work-life balance, they absolutely should. But also, you know, people shouldn't be forced to take vacations if they're not vacationers. Um, I use that as a very particular example because everyone says I need to take a vacation, but I'm not really a vacation kind of girl. I'm, I would rather staycation. So if I'm going to do that, I'll probably just hang out in my apartment for a week, maybe roam around Central Park. Um, but I, the stress happiness balance basically keeps in check how stressed you are and how happy you are. So if the level of stress that you have, it's still even with your happiness. I think that's the most important thing to think about. Hmm. Like naturally we all experience stress as humans. It just, it's inevitable. Um, in the work that we do, but there are two different types of stress. There's you stress as an EU and then stress and distress as in like DI stress. Right. Those are two different types of stress in the brain. You stress, is when your brain basically looks at the stress that you have and feels that you have all the, it, your brain knows it has all the perceived resources to solve the problem. And distress is when you don't like you have all the perceived resources to solve a problem and that's debilitating. That's when your body starts, you know, shooting itself up with cortisol and adrenaline and you, you actually kind of shut down. That's the, the extreme of that is it triggers fight or flight. <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, Nadia, I think we are going to wrap things up there, but that was a really good podcast and I really appreciate all the tips and methods that you shared with us. If the listeners want to reach out and learn more about Perksy and all the stuff that you have going on, where's the best place they could do that at? Yeah. So they can either, you know, head to our website at getperksy.com and that's P-E-R-K-S-Y, or they can shoot over an email at, um, hi at getperksy.com. Excellent. Amazing. Nadia, again, I, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for sharing everything with us. I really appreciate it. And listeners, I want to say thank you guys for tuning in once again, and we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for having me. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high-performance productivity coaching and our five, six, seven, and eight-figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.